This episode is brought to you by Destination St. John's. From puffin-packed sea stacks to wintering waterfowl, Newfoundland and Labrador is a paradise for birds and birders alike. Canada's easternmost province boasts some of the world's most spectacular and accessible seabird colonies with mind-boggling numbers of Atlantic puffins, northern gannets, and more lining incredible cliffs and islands. Its forests are alive with northern songbirds, and even the barrens are bountiful with tundra species like willow ptarmigan and rough-legged hawk. Make beautiful St. John's the base camp for your next birding adventure. Check it out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the hashtag birds in L. Well, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It is the last Thursday of the month, and you know what that means. This month in birding. March may be the slowest month for birding across much of the ABA area, but it's absolutely not slow here at Podcast Central. I have a great panel lined up this time around. But first, take this opportunity to share a little ABA travel event news. We've got some big plans in 2022. I think I mentioned them here before, but I'm going to do it again. We're doing the Adult Bird Camp in West Virginia in June. Looks like I I might be helping out with that one. And there's a trip to beautiful British Columbia in September. Details of both can be found on the ABA website, aba.org slash travel. Uh, We are definitely going to be at Biggest Week in American Birding in Ohio this May, in addition to the Indiana Dunes Festival in Indiana around the same time, pulling double duty. Uh, I will be at Biggest Week in the middle of the week. I'm planning on arriving on May 8th, staying through the 11th. I should be leading some trips, but I don't have a schedule yet. Don't know exactly which ones. doesn't really matter. There's good birding everywhere there. Uh, But I'll be around. Please say hello if you will be there as well. Apparently registration is gangbusters this year. Uh, I know some folks cringe at that, but it, it really is a you know a big bird party. And even if you are a person that doesn't like crowds, I hear you. Uh, it's worth experiencing at least once in your birding life. They they actually do a really nice job spreading people out across the area, uh, with the exception of the boardwalk. Uh, there's not a ton you can do about that, uh, but it is it is a thing. I admit I enjoyed it more than I thought I would the first time I did it. It's about community more than birding, but the the birding is really pretty exceptional. Anyway, that's that. Keep an eye on our social media for more information as we get it. Let's get to the good stuff. We've got a great panel this week. Ryan Mendelbaum, Andres Jimenez, Jenny Duberstein, e-birding, bird banding, daylight savings time. We we are covering it all after this week's Red Birds. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the end of March 2022. Let's talk wrens. Not typically on the list of vagrants due to their homebody nature and stubby wings, except along the very southern border of the ABA area. And even the Sinaloa wrens down there seem to be experiencing more of a range expansion as opposed to real long-distance vagrancy. But the split of winter wren into, confusingly, winter wren too electric boogaloo, and Pacific wren have caused birders in the middle of the continent to pay closer attention to those because of the potential for previously overlooked records of Pacific wren, which would be firsts in many states and provinces. Naturally, the bar is kind of high for these. There are differences in vocalizations, so recording the sounds is important. There are subtle differences in plumage. Sometimes I can see it, sometimes I can't, but I trust that there are birders more skilled than me who are more comfortable with that sort of thing. All that is prelude to the recent report of a Pacific wren in Presidio County, Texas. Well photographed, well recorded, certainly possible to represent that state's first record, but who knows. It wouldn't be the first would-be Pacific wren in Texas in the last couple years. Uh, This situation has been repeated at least once 
maybe twice before. Uh, similar words have turned up in Louisiana and Kansas. The latter accepted, the former not. There are a number of records in South Dakota and even one from 20 years ago in Iowa. They do seem to come right to the border in New Mexico and Colorado, so there's no particular reason why they would stop short of that arbitrary line, but who knows? It's a mystery. All you can do is keep getting photos and recordings, and hopefully a pattern will emerge. That's all I have this week. If you want a more complete roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba, or to get those rarities as soon as they happen and involve yourselves in discussion of them, you can join our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. It's the end of the month, which means this month in birding, and I've got a great panel, all of returning birders, to chat about some cool bird-related topics that we've seen in our various worlds for the month of March, the first month that officially feels like spring across much of the ABA area, so there's a little bit of excitement there. Uh, without going into too much ado, let's, let's just introduce the panel this month. I'll go in reverse alphabetical order. They are a science writer based in Brooklyn whose work has appeared in, in so, so many places, not least of which is as a regular guest here in the, on the panel. Uh, it's Ryan Mendelbaum. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Nate. How's everything going? Very, very good. Thank you. From Ontario by way of Costa Rica, the Urban Program Coordinator from Birds Canada, a host of the Warblers podcast. Please, please check that out. Welcome back, Andres Jimenez. Hi, Andres. What a pleasure to be back. Good, good. And... Last, but certainly not least, from the Sonoran Joint Venture. It is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Southwest Region Innovator of the Year. Congrats on that, by the way. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's, our, it's our friend, Jenny Duverstein, Dr. Dr. Jenny Duverstein. Good to see you, Jenny. It's true. Good to see you, too. So how does it feel to be Innovator of the Year? Um, I feel a little bashful about it, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Honored by the, by, the, by the recognition, but a little bit shy about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's... It's so innovative. So, uh. <laughs> um, so th this is this month is the month where we switch from standard to daylight time. I actually really enjoy this switch. I, I prefer daylight time personally. So it was um, with some interest. I noted that the U.S. Senate passed a bill that would eliminate standard time and go directly to year-round daylight. And I realize um, now that that's sort of an odd thing to discuss with this panel because Andres, you're in Canada, which I don't think has any proposal to do <laughs> likewise. And Jenny, you're in Arizona, which is famously the one state that refuses to acknowledge daylight time at all. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, I will throw the issue to the panel. Do you think year-round daylight time is better for birders? I think I'll have to start as the only panelist who... Um, <laughs> right. <Well. laughs> yeah, this is Ryan. I, I'm the only one who will be affected, I guess. And uh, it depends. I mean, I'm going to say that for... Like, I'm not going to notice a huge difference, right? Because mm. I've, it's always daylight savings time during the peak birding time. Yep. And I'm actually not excited because now in the winter time, it's going to be like, you know, 9 a.m. before the sun comes up or something. But I guess, you know, from a birding perspective, it's not like I was ever waking up early in the winter time to go birding. Yeah, fair enough. Birds are just out in the middle of the That's day. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but sure. Yeah, I love I can't wait to sleep in every once in a while. <laughs> yes, that's that's sort of what I love about it. Um, I always like that first jump to daylight. I, I mean, I don't like the spring forward, but uh, I, I like when they do it because it means a slightly later, later start. And uh, it means I can meet the I can meet the dawn a little bit better which I appreciate. I realize time is really arbitrary, but uh, I, do, I do like that. I don't know if to answer this as a tropical person oh, right. or as a Canadian, because I know, they, <laughs> I know they tried this in Costa Rica once when I was a kid. 
and we all hated it. It was awful, and it makes zero sense in the tropics. Like yeah. zero sense. Yeah, you got twelve hours day, twelve hours night. <laughs> it's like right. yeah, no, yeah. yeah, we're gonna shift this because of twenty minutes. No, why? Right. Why are we doing this? <laughs> and then when I came here, I have to admit I enjoyed it. Unpopular yeah. opinion. I kind of like it. Uh, I kind of like birding in the afternoon, actually. And I like those extra hours of daylight and sun that you get after you finish working or after yes. you go pick up the kids. Yeah. And so in my, my opinion, that is very enjoyable. I want to know is what is the impact on the waking up early? Because the birds are actually waking up at the same time, right? Yes, they, they do not use clocks. Yeah, they, yeah exactly. <laughs> so as a birder, does it matter how early you start with the clocks? Uh, it mer- it matters because it affects when I go to bed, I guess, because I, you know, I have kids, so like they do evening activities sometimes. And so I don't know, I kind of stay up late as it is generally, which makes getting up early sort of hard. This is maybe the wrong thing to admit to a panel of birders. Um, I've never been great at getting up super early to go birding. Like I can do it. I will do it. But, um, it's, it's, I, it's not my natural setting. I guess I'll just say that. So I, I like the so I like the later sunrise. But uh, you know, your mileage may vary. I guess. I don't know. I lived in Arizona for twenty years, and I can tell you that just not having to think about changing your clocks is that really is nice. Thing. So right. doing away <laughs> with the changing of the clocks, I'm there for whether it should be all standard time or all daylight time. I don't know. I heard an interesting story on NPR that I meant to look into because I've heard conflicting things about this, but like that there are more car accidents in the week after people spring forward and there's like correlations with the health things, heart attacks and like all these really bizarre things that, um, yeah. So I'd be curious to, so anyway, they were making a push for keeping it standard time all the time, not daylight time. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't thinking about birders though. No, no one ever (laughs) thinks about birders. There's also a correlation, I think, with judges. I read that judges give harder sentences a couple of days or two, three days really? after this. Yeah, the 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 change of the clocks. I'm I'm wondering if there's more grumpy birders out there when they that change the clocks. That sounds like the thing. I mean, it feels like it's the changing of the clocks that's the annoying thing. And regardless of which direction we go, just doing away with that will be a societal benefit. I usually just wait for. for some months. To for my clocks to be back again in order. <laughs> yeah. Some of them. Like yeah. the, the phone is automatic. Computer yeah. automatic. That's what I need. You know, the one in the microwave, the one in the room, that one can wait yeah. some months until it goes back to normal. Yeah, I don't drive all that much. So I, I there's always that brief moment of panic for the first time I get into the car and I realize that I think I'm really late. <laughs> that's that's uh, yeah. really it. That's really the only effect. <laughs> yeah, now that I work from home, like it doesn't matter to me. Like the sun could go up, it could go down. It doesn't matter. I'll I'll still be sitting in my room typing that's away. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's all, it's all arbitrary. But isn't that so weird, right? The way that we account time differs from the actual time accounting, which is the sun. You know, that daylight yeah. period and we switch it. I still find that very perplexing. The birds don't care. It's just a matter of uh, perception on our part, I guess. And I will say again, I do like the slightly later mornings, I guess, at least for the, uh, you know, the first six weeks. And then it's back to where it was before the time change. And shall we, shall we jump into the stories? Andres, do you want to lead off? All right, I'll lead. So I was very interested on a National Geographic story called Banishing 
birdsong. And I was interesting on that, interested on that story because of several reasons, uh, which I'm going to enumerate very soon. Um, after reading the article, it was, it was interesting because it had some shortcomings on how the story gets told, but then there's also very strong sides of it. Uh, one of the things is the, the article starts with kind of looming about bird loss and climate change and these terrible things that are going to happen. Uh, but then it starts talking about the indigenous guardians and the work that they're doing. And they, they talk about the indigenous leadership initiative and its partners that created the indigenous guardians program with experts that are hired to manage land uh, that has been indigenous from time immemorial. And so that was for me one of the highest highest points of this article, that it talks about this um, recognition that the indigenous people have been managing that land. And there's a report that suggests 25% of the land globally is in indigenous hands, and it holds 80% of biodiversity. And that kind of links up to another part of the article in which they recognize that in 2021, Canada committed 340 million dollars to indigenous-led conservation. And I think, I personally think that I want to see a lot more of that. I think that's going to be the future of many areas coming from Costa Rica, where there's also indigenous population in which their lands are managed by them and seeing the enormity of land in Canada that is steward without it being officially recognized by indigenous people. I think this is magnificent. And then they mentioned about an Audubon project in two areas in Manitoba, in which and this is where it connects to the disappearing song, right? And so they are using automated recording units to capture bird songs in different areas. And they're working with the indigenous partners to make this protected areas. And so uh, that was very interesting. Um, they find various species with the automated recording units. And this is new technology that is going to be awesome in the future. And it keeps on growing. And I, as I kept re- reading the article, one of the shortcomings of it is that I was hoping to understand better the role of indigenous partners. It felt like we were trying to, we were getting information and we didn't know how that information was going to be used. We didn't know how it was merging with indigenous knowledge per se. And so that was one of, for me, of the shortcomings. Um, uh, a strong side of it was as well, one of the things that one of the indigenous leaders says, he says, this is where we were put to live and we recognize this area. We have to look after it. And that resonated a lot with me because I'm away from Costa Rica. I'm working in conservation here, not in the land I was put to live. And so that resonated a lot with me. And uh, it also made me remember all the efforts for the past 10 years or five years that Birds Canada, Environment and Climate Change Canada, many other NGOs are putting on using these automated recorded units in parts up north, mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan, for all the breeding bird atlases, which are a fantastic way of measuring that, of keeping the pulse on how populations are changing. And that's my article. Yeah, I, I just love the, the ideas of um, you know, bringing in these indigenous communities and indigenous knowledge into modern, modern scientific communities and finding unique ways to mesh them together and, and you know, both tend to benefit from it. You know, the more people you can bring into these sort of citizen science, community science initiatives, um, the more successful they're going to be, I think. I agree with that. And I think there's also something to be said. I mean, I think indigenous science is uh, valid and real and it's it's a different thing than community mm-hmm. science or participatory science or um, citizen science. Those, those things that you're talking about, indigenous science is, is um, it's 
been here since time immemorial and we've learned a lot from it and a lot of things in, in our, you know, so-called Western science um, are, are um, borrowed from, stolen from indigenous science. And there's, there's just a lot to be learned um, and recognized in that. This is what I felt was missing from the article, Jenny, that they talked about the automatic recording units and how they were discovering certain bird species that were rare and trying to get a sense of the soundscape. But where was the indigenous knowledge there? I bet there was a lot. And how was that informing the way maybe the automated mm. research units were being placed or the type of location? So the time of day, all this knowledge, this vast knowledge, and that was missing. And I kind of wanted to know, I was desperate to know how that was informing the way this was going. I mean, I just think in general, there's like a ton of work that Canada and the U.S. still have to do in order to, you know, basically make things better for the Indigenous folks that are here. And I mean, I'm, it's really exciting to me to see a project that's going to be involving, you know, Indigenous knowledge to do kind of what Indigenous folks have been doing for, yeah, as Jenny said, like for ages, just maintaining the land and um, being stewards of the land. But I think there's a lot more work that, that that surely can be done here on top of that. You know, there's more, always could be more money, more restoration. And I'd, I'd love to see stuff like this happen in the United States as well. It's neat to see the sort of fundamental fundamentally different, or I don't know if it's fundamentally different, but Canada versus the United States. I mean, there's definitely more indigenous folks in Canada than there are in the United States. Um, they're more sort of integrated into local decision-making, especially in the Western provinces. Or Jenny, I see you were looking at me and perhaps I'm incorrect in that. Um, please, please correct me if I'm wrong. That's just my perception. I think there's a perception that... Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. That is true. <laughs> yeah. I think both countries are not great at dealing, at, you know, uh, it's just sure. in, di in different ways. Yeah, that it's neat to see this coming from a Canadian perspective as opposed to to a U.S. perspective. Certainly, it's neat to see it as well from a Costa Rican perspective because mm -hmm. I see both nations and I do see interesting differences. Uh, and especially when you start thinking about other nations uh, and how they will have done with it, Australia, New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, Canada, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand have a huge indigenous population. Yeah, and they were some of the countries that didn't sign the Universal Declaration of Indigenous Rights, right? And so uh, to see the different approaches and how this results on the land and how this results for conservation, it's fascinating and it's very different. And I can, here, I'm going to make an interesting segue. So you mentioned my Innovator of the Year Award, right? That's right. And that I got from, from Fish and Wildlife Service. And a big chunk of the reason that I got that was because of my efforts to uh, bring together people to have discussions around uh, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the way that we undertake our conservation work. And so there's this group that we started here in Tucson, and now it's, um, there were three of us that my, me and the two people that I work with at the Sonoran Joint Venture, and now it includes, there's somebody from Canada that, that just joined us um, from three other uh, organizations, and, and we get together, it's supposed to be for 90 minutes every Friday to read something and talk about it and think about, you know, how can we apply what we're learning to our work to change the way that we approach conservation. And so anyway, all of this that we're, we just finished reading this book, and I'm I'm holding it up for you in the radio world. You can't see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's called <laughs> Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous <laughs> Landscapes Through Indigenous Science by Dr. Jessica Hernandez. And I I recommend it. It's It was really thought-provoking and so different from a lot of uh, what you read, you know, kind of in, in sort of the mainstream academia world. 
Um, and it's it's sort of just about the importance and the validity of indigenous science and the necessity and listening to indigenous people um, in terms of of what they need because they they are kind of the the guardians of biodiversity and and the health of of the world that we're all part of. Yeah, I, I'm always struck by that the idea that um, you know there really is no future for all of the conservation and environmental work that we want to do unless we are engaging with every single person who touches that in, in every single way. Like it cannot be just a, a slim, small group of people that are pushing this. We have to make sure that we are reaching out to as many people as possible who have an interest in this and bringing them all in together to have these kind of collaborative solutions to what are, in fact, you know, really huge problems, uh, not just with bird conservation and birds in general, but but. But everything, everything, all the things, you know, waving my hands, there's a lot. Everyone knows what they are, what it is. <laughs> my copy of uh, Fresh Banana Leaves is in the mail. I think this may be the first time that a book has been recommended on the show and then immediately. <laughs> immediately. <laughs> awesome. Dang, that was fast, right? <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. And, and a lot of working with indigenous people is for us to learn how to decolonize conservation. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not only for the sake of the land or for, or for the sake of indigenous people. It's for our sake. It's for our sake to decolonize the way we've been doing conservation. And that's important to remember. Yeah, a look behind the curtain of the This Month in Birding. <laughs> we all kind of brainstorm ideas for things to talk about. And Nate usually starts us off by putting together a list of interesting things that he's read or seen um, over the course of the month. And one of them was the title of his paper. And I commented, I was like, oh, great. You want to talk about our paper? I was <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> he had looked at the title, but not the list of authors. That's right. Turns out that I was one of the authors. <laughs> great pick, paper. though. Yeah. Like your subconscious was selecting people to join this episode perfectly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? It worked out. Yeah. So we, um, I'm part of uh, a team. I was just one of a bunch of people who worked on this project. This is um, the latest publication in um, a study that we undertook looking at um, birders in the United States and in Canada and trying to understand their motivations and um, what, what um, compels them to bird. We looked at birders, hunters, and the general public to try and understand, especially their connections to wetlands and waterfowl. In this particular paper, we were looking we did a survey of um, e-birders. And so we sent, we got a survey of almost 29,000 e-birders and, and maybe some of you. Um, I think I may have filled panel, out that study, actually. You took <laughs> I vaguely I'm remember this. positive that some people listening to this podcast will have, you'll remember the survey where we asked yeah. you like, how far do you tend to travel when you bird? What kind of equipment mm -hmm. do you have? How do you contribute to conservation? These sorts of things. Um, and so this paper, we were trying to figure out, we had this theory that birders that were more specialized um, would participate more in eBird, would be more likely to contribute more checklists to eBird. I was thinking a lot in preparation about how to succinctly describe this study. Um, <laughs> it's hard, right? Um, but we were when, when we talk about specialization, like somebody who is a specialized birder, um, this is, there's like this whole academic field that defines what specialization is, but it basically looks at three different dimensions. And one is, you know, just, you know, how uh, it's called the effective dimension. It's just your psychological attachment. Like how important is birding to you? Birding is mm -hmm. like a huge part of my life. Birding, yeah, it's, yeah no, not so much. Um, so how, how somebody for whom it was very important would be, you know, have a high score for effective. Then there's behavioral, which is like how frequently do you go out and look at birds? Um, how, how long have you been engaging in birding? Um, 
what kind of equipment do you use? Like, do you have fancy binoculars? Do you have a spotting scope? Do you just look at birds out your back window? That sort of thing. And then there's the cognitive dimension. And that's sort of like how much knowledge do you have? How skilled are you um, in that activity? And what we found was not surprising. So there were about 20% of eBird users have submitted one eBird checklist. And that's it. Wow. And yeah, the big proportion of checklists that have been submitted to eBirds, and there's a lot of them, and a lot of observations are submitted by a relatively small proportion of people out of those 29,000. But what we really found is that the people that had the highest specialization, so people for whom birding is like super, looms really hard and they're large in their life, they tend to have specialized equipment, they tend to do it a lot. These are the people that submit eBird checklists the most frequently, which is not shocking makes sense it makes sense right yeah um but there were some other interesting things too so people that were motivated by achievement like a sense of achievement um Mm -hmm. tended to contribute more checklists and ebird plays into this you know with like the top 100 lists and just like the whole idea of competition or even just keeping lists keeping track of things yeah one thing that was really fascinating though we we also measured um appreciation and there was no difference. So that hmm. there were, you know, sort of equal levels. Everybody really appreciated birds. And that didn't seem to impact um, somebody's uh, engagement with eBird. So that was, that was kind of an interesting, an interesting finding. And so, you know, sort of the idea behind the results of this are just that with contributory science projects like this or citizen science or however you want to call it, um, ideally, you want to have people that get engaged and stay engaged because they yeah. learn the system better. They, they tend yeah. to submit, you know, higher quality data and eBird. I mean, if you haven't looked at the eBird science tools later, if you, lately, if you go to eBird.org forward slash science, holy moly, yeah, <laughs> there's really some cool amazing stuff. stuff and it's yeah. all made. It's all your observations and my observations and all of our observations. They can really take that and do cool stuff. So anyway, the point of this being, how can we, take that small percentage of people that are contributing most of the checklists and make it a bigger percentage of the people that are contributing more checklists. And so understanding what's motivating people um, can, can be a good way to think about how to, how to design different challenges or different um, things that would perhaps right. attract people to, to engage more. As you said, it's, it's really intuitive that people who are serious or however you want to define that, I guess you did define it. That's what your thing was. <laughs> That's what you think about. People who are, um, who, for whom birding is an important part of their life, an important part of their personality and an important part of their everything would be the ones who would be willing to, you know, go through learning eBird. I remember when eBird started and it was not intuitive at all. Like the data entry was really difficult. They've gone so far to make that so easy and so, I don't know, intuitive. You know, that's got to play a role, too. And then once you get in and you start playing around with the, a little bit the gamification and, you know, people can have their opinion on whether or not that's productive or positive for the birding community at large. I think it's clearly, as you've shown, positive for the data acquisition uh, side of it. I mean, you can't argue with the fact that the stuff that the science stuff that they've come up with is just absolutely amazing. So. It's incredible. The interesting thing about our paper. So we found that while more specialized birders tended to contribute more eBird lists. Not all specialized birders contributed lots of eBird lists. Yeah. So specialization in and of itself wasn't enough, but specialization combined with achievement um, tended yeah. to, to bring people into eBird. And so thinking yeah. about how could you make eBird more compelling for people that were specialized, but that are more motivated by um, just like an appreciation of birds. 
not so right. much by the competition, or maybe they're even turned off a little bit by the competition side. Yeah, and I think that yeah. does happen. Um, you know, it's certainly seen people sort of frustrated with, uh, I don't know how you can tr- completely turn that off, because that is what motivates some people, and it motivates them to produce good data. I think you just have to broaden the broaden the motivations, right? You Some people enjoy the photos. Some people enjoy, I don't know, the science side. Maybe people are really altruistic in submitting it because they really like to contribute to science. I think that's a huge part of it. There's just a lot of ways to burden. It's how, how can you incorporate all those? I think that? you're exactly right. Yeah. It's yeah. not about like, we need to change it. It's more about how can you broaden the, yeah. the appeal? Yeah. Yeah. When I talk about eBird to my friends, I always joke that it's essentially like Cornell has duped a bunch of really specialized birders into submitting really great data by providing like the most robust listing and reporting tools. <laughs> it's so true. And so I think that it's really interesting then to say like, well, and how do you get people to actually do this? Not because it's great reporting and list keeping tools, but because they're actually submitting amazing scientific data. Nate, maybe next time, <laughs> this would have to be this month in Amer- in birding from three years ago, but we did a, a game called Desert Avocaching. Uh-huh. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That used eBird. We needed to know what was going on with birds in southeastern Arizona, um, southeastern California, um, looking at the impacts of solar energy development on uh, migratory bird populations. Yeah. And it was, you know, hugely underbirded, just like blank spots on eBird, or if there right. were hot spots, there were no checklists that had been submitted for them. And so we created a game. And we, it got people out. It totally got people out. That's yeah, like wild. 450 checklists submitted over the course of a few months. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on one hand, that's so clever. And also, God, it's so we're so easily manipulated. <laughs> <laughs> there were prizes. Yeah, this, <laughs> yeah right? <laughs> this is interesting also in terms of atlasing. Um, right now, New York State is doing the uh, breeding bird atlas. Mm-hmm. And we, if you look at the Adirondacks, which is really some of the best bird habitat that the state has, it's also like probably the least atlas. Because yeah. when people go, they're often going not because they want to see a array of birds. It's because they want to chase kind of like the boreal three it's like canada jay blackback woodpecker and uh boiled chickadee but like american three-toed woodpecker used to breed in new york state and was in like many not many but it was in a handful of blocks in the last breeding bird atlas and the parts where it bred have so far gone unsurveyed and they haven't reported a three-toed woodpecker in new york state in like 10 years and is that because of this gamification of birding that people aren't actually going and, and, and using eBird as a citizen science platform. They're just going to chase birds. I don't know. That, yeah. that makes me think of something. Jenny, what was the percentage of the people that were like super, super active? I need to look up the number. I it I know that I'll, the only percentage I'm remembering is that 20% of people had submitted one checklist and that's it. And so it was, it, it might've been similar, a similar percentage. I can look it's, it up and tell you before the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because there there's a rule, the one percent rule is called, and it applies to to websites and internet communities in which one percent creates content, nine percent interacts with that content and edits it, and then ninety percent only sees it. And it makes me think of how many people, if you were to apply this theorem, including um, your Merlin Bird ID app, how many people are just looking at that content because we're essentially creating content, right? If you think about it from the perspective of an internet social media network, um, many people are just seeing the content that is being generated of that one 9% maybe editing. And so it makes me think about maybe looking at this more of a huge internet community 
Because I always think of Ebert as the social media for birders. Because once you go to a place, it is oh, in a lot so of way. Julia yeah. was here. Oh, Nate <laughs> saw the black bag woodpecker. Oh, What's totally happening here? He didn't well, come. I've never he, seen he, black bag woodpecker, but yeah, no, he didn't tell me he was yeah. coming. <laughs> I'm in New York, Nate. We'll get you black bag woodpecker. <laughs> I need it. I need to. I need to see it. Well, here I am. I need to see it. I would like to see it. I did look at the cool. number. It was a little bit. It was a little bit less than 18 percent of eBird users contribute the majority of the checklists to eBird. Yeah, pretty cool. I, I do believe that because once you get into it, I guess part of it has become second nature and part of your birding, how you bird and stop thinking about it. It's just a thing you do while you're birding, like carrying a camera or recording equipment or whatever you do. And um, part of it is, you know, you feel like you're you want to put your stuff in for your own list. List building is a huge part of eBird. That's why I use it. I'm not competitive on the list, but I like knowing my stats. I like knowing what counties I've seen birds in and stuff. That's that's really fun. It scratches that particular itch uh, for birding for me. I do know some people that do not contribute to eBird, but still use it, which seems so strange to me. But whatever. I, I was going to ask that. What is your respective motivation? What is your respective motivation for, for eBirding? I'm the world's laziest eBirder. I'm the kind of eBirder that if I go birding with you and you're eBirding, I'll say, oh, you share that checklist with me. <laughs> okay, we have, we have our 90 here. <laughs> I probably spend, and I hope my coworkers don't listen to this, but I probably spend like 30% of the day on eBird, but I'm not like <laughs> submitting eBird. I, I submit like I have a, a streak of 200 something days going so wow. I just I submit so I could just and I'll like I'll hear a robin it's like all right I birded today I heard one robin incidental <laughs> checklist um but mainly I do it just because like I love learning about birds like I want to know where yeah. I want to know like the where's the most inland location that a northern gannet's ever been seen I just do all day I just look at eBird reports <laughs> oh but I'll tell you this I use eBird I 100 percent go to the eBird website regularly and look at things on eBird and look things up on eBird. I just mm -hmm. am pretty bad at submitting my own checklists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my motivation is my own personal record keeping for the most part. For me, each one of those birds that I put in there is a memory that would otherwise get like stuck in the back of my brain and that I would lose. And I don't want to lose those. I want to be able to go into the, my eBird account and say, oh yeah, I remember that day with those people. And it was really cool. And we saw this and this and this and this and this. I also like checking out the counties in my state and trying to find birds and get so many birds in each county. I think that's, yeah, it's, it's a stats thing, but it's like a total <laughs> eternally motivated stats thing. Like Nate I, and not, I do it to flex. It's to flex on <laughs> social media. So you can have, <laughs> totally. Oh wow. I saw flex to like the three people that would today. get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can brag with everybody by posting the eBird checklist on Twitter. My total ticks in North Carolina is at 4,300 now. <laughs> <laughs> like exactly. I don't care. I don't care. That's not a thing that matters to me. <laughs> Good for you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I should have led with this, but I want to give a shout out. I mentioned that I was just a team, one of part of a team that published this paper. And mm -hmm. it was actually somebody who had recently finished his undergraduate degree, Connor Rosenblatt, who was is the first author on this paper. And holy crap, it's he did an amazing job. He worked with uh, Dr. Ashley Dayer, who's a human dimensions professor at Virginia Tech. And they they really led the charge. And then there were a bunch of us um, from the U.S. and Canada that were um, also part of that team from Fish and Wildlife Service and Missouri Department of Conservation and USGS and University of Alberta and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And um, it was it was a team effort. But uh, Connor really shepherded this paper um, from start to finish. It was impressive to behold. Yeah, I, I will admit that when p these papers come through, I typically only read the introduction and the discussion at the end. Um, so, but those, they were great. <laughs> nice work. <laughs> nice work, Connor. Yeah. <laughs> 
this paper is so silly. It's, it's the subject silly. The subject matter is silly. So, I mean, birders around the world are probably familiar with the Australian magpie. They're, you know, these crow-shaped birds that, you know, they're beautifully sort of pied-colored, black and white, but they're most famous for, like, attacking bikers <laughs> during breeding season. Like, they, they just, you know, go in and the flyer and hit each other right on the head. Uh, this group in Australia at the University of the Sunshine Coast uh, was doing a pilot study. They essentially wanted to ensure that they weren't going to harm the magpies with a tracking study. So they um, set up kind of a station. Um, they came up with this awesome new tracker that they could use to track these birds that they were really excited about. Uh, most trackers are too big to fit on, on birds. So they were really excited to have this like well-fitting tracker for these birds. And I think to them, what was so exciting about this tracker was that the, you know, the birds would come to this magnetized feeding station and it would, you know, use it to charge the trackers and it would deposit data and it was a high-tech solution and they were excited, but, you know, they just wanted to make sure it was an ethical study. Uh, <laughs> so they strapped these trackers onto some of the magpies, and within an hour, the a, a non-tracked uh, non magpie is helping another magpie take off the tracker. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was awesome because these, um, these trackers were obviously engineered so that the birds couldn't take them off. There was just one kind of point of weakness um, that, you know, if they pecked at it with enough force that they could get it off. And it didn't take long before all of the birds that they had put trackers on had... Uh, Removed the uh, <laughs> removed the trackers, and what's so cool about this is that it really demonstrates sort of this what they call um, rescue behavior, but what is is really this sort of cooperative behavior showing off the intelligence of birds. And one of the things that I think um, you kind of learn when you think about these about birds and in bird intelligence is that social birds tend to be the ones who kind of show the most impressive um, feats of intelligence and problem solving. And so magpies being a social bird, you know, they were able to kind of Un, you know, hack the system and take off their trackers. And so it was, you know, it, the pilot study didn't go as they planned, but they, you know, collected some incre an incredible observation. And it also demonstrates exactly why you do pilot studies. This, this story is hilarious. I, I love the <laughs> fact that, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know much about magpies. I only know, as you said, Ryan, the videos where they are attacking bikers and pedestrians in Australia, they're, they're like some wild cross between common raven and northern mockingbird in terms of like their intelligence and also their sort of general aggression. <laughs> and so the thought of this bird kind of barreling down at you is, is kind of terrifying and, uh, and fascinating at the same time for someone that loves birds. Just think of all the cool stuff they could have learned if the birds had kept their trackers on. And yet, the neat thing is that they, not that they got it off themselves, but that they cooperated with each other and communicated with each other to get it off. I mean, that's, I, you know, we've <laughs> certainly heard about birds too that have this sort of capability like Kias and uh, in New Zealand and, um, you know, famously parrots and stuff. But this is, this is like yeah. beyond, it's sort of so beyond. Silly our ability to to comprehend what birds are doing. I just love that it was it, it was within 10 minutes. They really just yeah, started like right? saw the tracker and they re started ripping not them like off week, each other. Like literally 10 <laughs> minutes. Like this this is not going to work at all. Yeah, Jenny, you were saying. Well, so okay, I'm going to share a story. I um the first time I saw bird banding, I was like I was horrified just like watching the bander <laughs> handle the bird and I think probably most of us have had that experience the first time. You're like, "What are you doing to that poor bird?" 
And then I went on to work as a bander in abandoning stations for many years. And, and I was um, handling a black billed magpie in Colorado and I had it on my sleeve, on my, in, my, in the hand. And there was like a group of kids and I was talking about the bird and I have these two silver bracelets that I always wear on my wrist. And the magpie was like, Oh, pretty silver bracelets and started pecking at them. And it, you know, it didn't feel great. And so I had a long sleeve shirt on. I pulled it down over my, over the bracelets. So they weren't visible. And I swear it took this bird maybe 10 seconds. It reached down, <laughs> grabbed my sleeve, pulled my sleeve up <laughs> and went after the bracelets again. It was, it was impressive. Yeah. Um, but to bring that full circle, I'm, I feel like, you know, now 25 years later in my career, I'm kind of, I'm not like back at the point of being horrified when I see bird banding and I recognize the important things that we learned, but I do think that, yeah, we need to think about why, why we're doing things, why we're putting things on birds. Um, we tend to think of like, oh, wow, they're, they're, look how intelligent they are. And we're judging them by, you know, our measures, our standards of intelligence. And I don't know. It's just, I'm like, go magpies, get rid of yeah. those factors. <laughs> we show those researchers. <laughs> I think I read once that um, in some banding studies, birds actually find birds that are banded more attractive than birds that are unbanded. And it's just like, you know, we are going in and like meddling with, with the, I, I, obviously I want to see amazing data come out of these studies, but I agree. I, I, as soon as they did it, I was just, yeah, you go. <laughs> this, this is what I was thinking. I was thinking of the fitness of the bird, right? We don't fully understand what is the fitness of the individual in which we put a tracking device. We don't understand if it makes them more attractive. We don't fully understand if it makes them more uh, heavy or if they fly uh, faster or slower or if they take more energy. And many people even worry about it. I've received emails from people saying, hey, you know, you're putting these backpacks on these birds and why are you doing it? Or you're putting these tags and it looks like they could be harming the bird. And so it made me think about that. If they're taking it off so quickly, it's because of a reason. And at the same time, yeah. and, and they found help. They found help. And this is when, when Jenny was mentioning, we judged them by our standards of what's smart. They found help and they did it so quickly and they removed it collaboratively in a way that it was not altruistic, meaning that there was no reward for the one that was helping. So yeah, totally. it was clearly annoying for the bird. And it, it's very interesting. But at the same time, if we were not experiencing massive destruction of forest and many other things, we wouldn't need to track the birds. We track them because we need to understand where they're going, which is, are the places that we need to protect. And so it's, it's a bit of a trade-off. It's an unfortunate trade-off mm -hmm. because of ourselves, right? Because we're doing that to the birds. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking is, I kept on thinking about Happy Feet, one. And <laughs> if the magpies were looking at us like the aliens, putting devices on them, right? <laughs> and then they immediately go to a friend. It's like, yeah, take totally this not. off of me. Yeah. To reiterate, um, Kind of what Andres is going for. I mean, they weren't, you know, there's a reason that they're tracking these magpies. They were doing it because they're concerned about the effects of uh, climate change and the intensity mm -hmm. of heat waves uh, because magpies are, are vulnerable to these things. And again, it's good that they did a pilot study. I mean, it, it's good to know that clearly these magpies thought that these trackers were bad. Um, and so it, if they do want to continue doing research on the magpies, then hopefully they can find a way to do it that the birds don't immediately <laughs> think it's a parasite and start helping each other take off the trackers. And, and that's the thing. The trackers continue to improve, right? They're not the same thing that they were 20 years ago. We've oh, sure. greatly improved on the size, how portable they are. And unfortunately, I think this is the only way we've found to try to understand the situation of the birds better and how we can help them. 
Yeah. And, and to, you know, I don't, just so I don't get hate mail from people that, <laughs> that love bird banding. I'm not against bird banding. I am pro carefully considering, <laughs> do I need to actually trap and handle wildlife in order to answer this question? Or are there other observational ways in which I could do this? And I think that this is such an interesting podcast. I feel like we're getting into these deep philosophical yeah. discussions. Mm-hmm. I feel like people working in um, wildlife biology, wildlife conservation, maybe don't ask themselves that question hmm. as frequently as we should. Because yes, maybe it is easier to put satellite tags on birds and let them go and or take blood samples. But you know, with a little bit more effort and more observation, there are things that we could that we could learn. Yeah. Galaxy brain take. We should be spending this money to not destroy the environment. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get to. If yeah. we were not doing that, we wouldn't need to tag the birds. Yeah, I'm on the same page with you, Andres. I'm on the same page. <laughs> it is sort of interesting because these, you know, Australian magpies are famously, you know, birds of kind of questionable habitat. Like they're they're common in suburbs. They're common in relatively urbanish, developed, you know, degraded areas it makes sense to put like a tracking a tracking system on a bird that you are not going to see for 99 point whatever percent of the time that you are studying it like a, mm. a wood thrush or something like see what you mean wood thrush goes into the woods you're not going to see it on your lawn for the most part like it's it's you're not going to know where it goes it's a mystery there's a reason we didn't know until the last co- two decades but australian magpie i don't know <laughs> like if you had enough manpower i feel like you could follow one around but then again, you know, you're using gas to drive that to drive around. You're you've got to pay the person to to do that. You know, it's yeah, ah, feasibility. There's a lot of lot of pros and cons. A lot of uh, a lot of decisions you have to like just make the best one out of it. Which brings us back to let's not destroy the world and let's yeah, keep it go. healthy. <laughs> that's simple. That's a simple thing to do, obviously. And it brings us back to the value of things like eBird. There you go. Yeah. Amazing science this that we can knowledge that we can get from observation. It didn't intend it yeah. to be, but it And then was. I'll have to just drop that obviously, and it's most important that we incorporate indigenous knowledge and stewardship <laughs> in the entire thing. I mean, we have well, to we have to wrap perfect. it up. Look it's at that. ethical it's, harvest, right? We need to harvest those data, that data ethically as you do with any other resource. And that's something we learned from indigenous people. And what is the most ethical way of 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 understanding this bird and ethic towards reciprocity to the bird. And that's something important to remember. This is the nicest bow I've Synergy. ever seen tied on, yes. a, on an episode <laughs> of the show. Like, this is great. <laughs> it really is. All right, well, let's just go to the question of the month since uh, we, we really can't improve on the way that we have tied this set up. And this is actually related to some of the stuff uh, as well. Because uh, this question of the month was inspired uh, by a comment I saw on a Facebook group I'm part of. Uh, it came from Phil Sean, who is a bird tour leader, some of you. Uh, might know him. Uh, I thought it was really insightful. It was in the context of, you know, one of those right or wrong way to bird discussions that sometimes pop up from time to time. And he said that, you know, some people prefer to look for birds and some people prefer to look at birds. And neither are wrong ways, but they don't always see eye to eye on a lot of things. So my question for you is, do you prefer to look for birds or do you prefer to look at birds? And I, and I realized that for each birder, it's sort of really a spectrum uh, and there's a lot of nuance there but but given the choice which one speaks more to you i prefer to look if i have to pick one at birds Makes versus sense. four birds you're a scientist <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, for me, I can't answer that because I like them both. Right, exactly. I would say that, I mean, I like looking at birds that I looked for. Like I, <laughs> the best feeling ever to me is like going on a, you know, search for a bird, red crossbill specifically, let's say, and then finding them and looking at them. But the best part of that whole experience for me is looking at the birds. So fine, I'm, I'm looking at the birds. Yeah. That's my favorite part. The best animals I've seen and the best birds I've run into are the ones that have found me. So this so we asked the birds. Do you prefer to look for Andres? <laughs> yeah, exactly, or Andres? exactly. <laughs> I'm sure the birds want neither. They don't want. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and who is this guy? <laughs> and taking into account that some people might only be able to listen, um, I would yeah, say that enough. yeah, listening has to be an important part of that. And I think it depends on the morning. I've spent the majority of my day chasing, or my life chasing for stuff. And I, the stuff ends up finding me, to be honest. <laughs> so it depends on the morning. That's true. I think for me, um, obviously I prefer, obviously I love both uh, to different degrees on different days with different people in different situations. Um, I think what motivates me more is looking for birds. But like I said, like I've had some amazing experiences looking at birds um, that are in my yard. Uh, discovering, you know, little subspecific variations among, I don't know, the little well, normal yeah. birds that I see in my in my neighborhood. Um, noticing the first juncos of the year and the last juncos of the year and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, it's all part and parcel of the birding experience and part of why I love it. But I think if I had to if I had to choose one, I think if I were honest with myself, it would probably be looking for birds as a motivation. I'm going to extend my answer. Right, I think that the healthiest, the healthiest one I've done was not looking. And if it's very healthy to just, I think when I feel the less pressure, the less uh, in, like disappointed even in many cases is when I'm just not looking. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you. I've been doing, I have a friend visiting who, who's thinking about moving to Tucson. And so we've been like driving around looking at different parts and, and we'll bring up the bird's eye app, mm -hmm. eBird hotspots. And we'll be like, okay, let's go to this neighborhood. Yeah, so like, exactly. Some little park, some random Tucson park in the middle of the city. And, you know, we're, we're going there to look at birds and check out the neighborhood. Um, but part of the excitement is, it's not like an anything special place. There's nothing remarkable mm -hmm. about the habitat and not knowing what you might see. Yeah. And it's exciting, you know, like, Oh wow. We wow. saw six vermilion flycatchers or, you know, sometimes something sort of unexpected shows up and, and that's cool. And it's fun to not know what you're going to see. Yeah. When you're in the town of Monteverde and you see a three watchful bird bird, right, Nate? <laughs> Just walking around. Well, oh, we were with I a mean, guy who was supposed to show us to us, but we, we I'm going to add that. Like if you were go like going on birding vacations is looking for birds and going to the zoo is looking at birds. So I, I might even have to change my answer because like going birding is objectively looking for the birds versus right. going you, to how the do you zoo draw the yeah, I guess sort of the question is where do you draw the line too? Yeah. Well, and oh, so there's I was wondering about that too. Is is it like, oh, I heard there's an XYZ species, I'm going to go I'm going to go to Bosque del Apache and look for the Rufus Neck Wood Rail. Mm -hmm. versus like, I'm going to go to Bosque del Apache and see what is out there. Yeah. To me, that's how I'm defining that's it. That's it. The time when you sit for lunch, even though you would have gone looking for the birds and you sat for lunch and then boom, 
a swallowtail kite flies on top of you. And then it just happened, you know, it's a bit more like being open to the open to the universe. And I think that's what I refer to by not looking at all. Is mm-hmm. that for me is the best moment when you're not looking at all and then boom, something magnificent, unexpected, and doesn't even have to be rare, happens. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much the essential, the 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 platonic ideal of the birding experience. I think it's not really sense. how it works here in New York City. You don't just have all <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, I have had amazing birds at my house. And that was the best day of my life. But ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, I I must go somewhere else. I, 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 I cannot simply experience a bird from my second story apartment. I'm going to give you the perfect example. Um, I have two. One of them, I was with my family. We went to a playground in front of the Art Gallery of Ontario. This is downtown Toronto. Downtown. My first barred owl was chilling on a tree and some cops were taking photos of it. Like, that wasn't good for that. Yeah, no, but this is this for. is not this is not Central Park. This is one tree in a park. <laughs> Andres, there was a bard owl and there was a bard owl at New York Public Library, like one avenue from Times Square the other day. So that's and what that, they do. Bard owls. That's are what wacky. I mean. It was just there and I it kind of came across it. Then my wife needs to go to the MTO to do a license something. She was getting her license and I was all grumpy. I don't want to go. And decide to go. And then we're driving, boom, snowy owl right in the road and then of course she goes like yeah i told you we have to come right and then i go with my kids go around the snowy owl boom a second snowy owl <laughs> then i continue going around the park boom third snowy owl being attacked by a red-tailed hawk it feels like a quintessentially uh, ontario experience right there <laughs> it was a quintessential ontario experience but that's the thing you gotta open yourself to a quintessential fair enough Thank you so much, Jenny, Ryan, Andres. This is a, a really nice conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed spending some time with you. I will have links to all the stuff that all these people are doing. Uh, they're all doing great things. Uh, in the show notes, please check that out. And otherwise, um, have a great spring. There's a lot of exciting things going on. And uh, we'll see you down the road, all of you. Pura vida. Pura vida. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with membership. You get a lot of benefits like magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel, and you can learn more and get all the information you want at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Eric Elvert of Dayton, Ohio, and Lisa Freeman of Los Angeles, California, both of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as the reason for doing so, or one of the reasons, let's be honest. Thank you so much and welcome to the ABA. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was known to announce to a group of birders in Africa doing a nocturnal drive looking for the fancy winged night jars. It's standard time! Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who refer to the moment the first Corvus Corax pass overhead every day as daylight raven's time. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association, but we're on Twitter as at ABA. For much of the ABA area, you know, at least in the East, This is a great time to search for American Woodcock, who are doing their really cool display flight every evening at dusk. And there's really nothing like walking out into a field as the sun goes down and waiting for that neat twittery flutter. And of course, the paint of the males and watching them burst out of the grasses into the air like little rockets as it gets darker. It's harder to follow them. And that classy orange buff on the sides turns to dark brown and finally to darkness where there's no light at all. 
It's, it's a thing I have to remember to do every year because you always get a little discombobulated the next morning if you forget to turn woodcocks black. Questions, comments can come to podcast at AB8.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.